Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone Campbell Movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now, here are your co-hosts, Megan Rollins and Kevin Whitham. Welcome back, everyone, to our Common Grounds Unity podcast. This is a podcast where we have conversations and dialogue with folks in the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement and, and congregations uh, seeking to bring uh, greater unity to our movement to impact the world in greater ways. I'm Kevin Witham, uh, one of your hosts, along with my co-host, Megan Rawlings. And I'm so glad to be here and good to hear from you again, Kevin. And uh, I'm super excited about our guest today, Bob Russell. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him. So buckle up and let's get started. During his senior year of high school in northern Pennsylvania, Bob realized a calling to enter the ministry, and soon thereafter, he enrolled in Cincinnati Bible Seminary, where he graduated in 1965. Bob became a pastor of Southeast Christian Church, which grew from a small congregation of 120 to become one of the largest churches in America, with 18,000 people attending in 2006 when Bob retired. Now, through Bob Russell Ministries, Bob continues to preach at churches and conferences throughout the United States, provide guidance for church leadership, mentor other ministers, and authored Bible study videos for use in small groups. An accomplished author, Bob has written over a dozen books. Bob and his wife, Judy, of 54 years, two married sons, Rusty and Phil, and seven grandchildren. Bob enjoys playing golf and is an avid University of Louisville football and basketball fan. Bob, how are you? Well, there are a couple things I want to change on that bio. One is I just learned several days ago that I'm going to be a great grandfather. Ah! I can I'm supposed to be in August and I can remember in my youth when I thought great grandparents were really old, but I don't feel that way anymore. Old age is always just <laughs> 10 years older than what I am at the at the point. And the second thing, it said I'm an avid University of Louisville basketball fan. And yes, you like UK now? No, no, no. Oh. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't backslidden that far. But <laughs> yesterday, Louisville ex- expected to get chosen for the tournament, and they were the last team out. So we're kind of in mourning today that Louisville's not going to be in the tournament. Oh well, I'm sorry to hear that, but um. C-A-T-S, cats, cats, cats. Okay, moving forward. Um, Tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Tell us um, about your life, ministry, your spiritual journey. Give us a little glimpse of who is Bob Russell. Well, I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania, and uh, my parents were just godly people. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the doors were open. But I did not consider ministry until... uh, almost graduation, went through a series of experiences, it became pretty obvious that God had a different plan for my life. And I went to Cincinnati Bible Seminary and graduated in 65, met my wife there. And uh, 
I served one year full-time at a little church outside of Cincinnati, came to Louisville in 2006, stayed at the same church for 40 years. I was so happy here, and they couldn't get rid of me. But I retired in uh, 2006 from the located ministry. But I didn't retire so I could play golf every day or just goof off. I, I wanted to have another chapter in my life where I could minister to ministers. And that's what I've done for the last 15 years. I, I do retreats for preachers, and I limit them to eight at a time because I want there to be interaction. There are all kind of mass gatherings that preachers can go to, but this is one where uh, they can have personal attention, and we spend three and a half days calling it a time of refreshing. And I've done, uh, I think, 102 of those retreats. And if you would have told me that I would do 102 retreats and they would never get old, I, I, I would have never believed that. But it's kind of a sweet spot for me. So I've done those retreats, and I travel and speak, and I write a blog every week, and I have uh, really enjoyed this, uh, this final chapter of my life. Well, Bob, I love what you're doing. I've, I've been preaching since I was uh, 23 years old, full-time. And so uh, the fact that you're blessing other uh, preachers and ministers is just, I know, a real gift to those who uh, participate uh, in, in those retreats. So what a, what a gift uh, you're giving in a ministry you're offering. Um, yeah, as you look back, when you were 23, you know, I think it was 1966 when you uh, started there at Southeast, um, after a year of ministry elsewhere, how would you say things in ministry are different than when you started uh, today as compared to back then? Well, there are some huge, huge differences. A lot of changes have taken place in the last 50 years. Culture has changed so much. Uh, I, I remember in my early years, I would tell women driver jokes. I wouldn't tell any women driver <laughs> jokes today. Uh, I know. That's just one way that culture has changed. And the church is so much different. You know, I, I came to Southeast, and it was a traditional service with a call to worship and an organ and piano and pretty formal service. And, wow, uh, we've made a lot of changes over the years, and church services are nothing like they were when I first started. And Christian people are different, too. I uh, some ways they're they're more alert and and aware, and in other words, other ways uh, they're more critical, and their level of uh, expectation is higher. Mm. So I I kind of feel for young preachers today because you know ministry is a wonderful calling, but it is a tough occupation, and uh, they ministers need encouragement. I tell preachers I was. I was on a panel discussion about 10 years after I retired. It was a panel discussion over at Southern Baptist Seminary, and I was on a panel with uh, two professors. And as a group of preachers, we were talking to it. The very first question was, what should a preacher do if a transgender wants to join the church? I gulped because I had no idea how to answer that question at that point. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those two professors had just done a study on that, one had written a paper on it, and they went on and on for about 10 minutes about if this, if that. Finally, it came my turn, and I had to say something, and I said, you know what I think? I think I retired just on time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago, we, we didn't have to deal with that subject. That's how rapidly culture and the church are changing. And now to, for these guys, young guys, to go through COVID, 
shutting down the church and trying to do online services when they're not trained to do that and, and all the political rancor that spills over into the church, there are a lot of preachers who are battling discouragement. And in, especially in our movement, Kevin, we, we don't have a bishop. We don't have any accountability above us. And a lot of guys feel like they're doing ministry alone. So that's one of the reasons that, that I wanted to spend this chapter in my life trying to encourage preachers. Yeah. Amen. I love it that you're doing that. Um, Bob, when you accepted the call to Southeast, what most excited you about the opportunities of being the preacher of this church? Well, I was a young, inexperienced man, but it was so obvious that this was a fertile field. When, when Jesus talked about some seed will fall on fertile soil, this new church in Louisville, Kentucky, had, a, first of all, a wonderful location. It was on the cutting edge, the growing edge of Louisville. They had some really fine leaders, elders, and it was started by the South Louisville Christian Church, and who's under the leadership of Olin Hay, who was a very respected minister. And some of his best leaders came out to Southeast. And there wasn't much... Uh, competition in the area. Louisville is a highly Catholic town, and the Catholic church was dead. And there was, when I came and visited this church, there was just a vitality and enthusiasm about the people. Uh, it, it was a golden opportunity. And for the Lord to give that to me at age 22, I knew I was in way over my head, but I was excited about it from the very beginning. Hmm. Bob, as, as some of our listeners may not know, but uh, I, I believe I'm accurate in saying that that Southeast Christian Church is uh, the largest restoration movement church, at least to my knowledge, in America, the world, I, I would think. Um, I, I remember when your book came out, and for our listeners, again, one of the books that Bob has written um, it goes back to about the year 2000. Uh, was when God builds a church. You can still uh, buy that book. I've recently had some leaders read it. Um, so I was eager to read it when it was first released and, and was blessed by it. As you look back on that book that has helped so many churches kind of evaluate their ministries and their life, uh, has anything in your view uh, changed about how God builds churches uh, now in 2021 than when when you first wrote that book, would you add anything or change anything that you said in that book? Well, first of all, thank you for your comment about the book, and it did pretty well. The only problem with that book, there was another guy uh, who wrote a similar book. I can't remember his name, but his book was The Purpose Driven Church. <laughs> and when Rick Warren wrote that book about the same time, it got such widespread acceptance and publicity, mine kind of in the shadows, but it, it, I, I appreciate the influence that it did have. You know, when we tried to choose what chapters would go in what order, I originally had the first chapter is the church needs to be a place where the word of God is preached in truth and power. And the editor suggested we put that maybe back toward the end and we have evangelism as the first emphasis. And, uh, I insisted that that be the first chapter because that would not change today. Uh, I, I still think the power of the church is directly connected 
to the communication of the truth of the gospel. And that never needs to change. I've always been amazed at the power of God's word. One thing I probably would add today, churches are emphasizing so much service to the community, and some churches are doing a terrific job at uh, ministering to their community in a variety of ways. And I think in light of the culture and the hostility toward the church, that probably is a whole lot more important today than it was when I wrote that book. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Let me ask you about that. Um, I've had people say, well, you're supposed to minister to the church first, then the community, then, then, then. Um, Do you think sometimes we place too much emphasis on reaching out to the community and not taking care of our own people or vice versa? No, I I think that is a, a, a legitimate criticism or concern because if we think that we're going to gain the favor of the world and they're going to come begging uh, to hear the gospel. I don't think no matter, no matter how much we serve the world, they're, they're not going to come back and, and uh, be favorable toward the church. And we just, I think we need to be careful that we don't uh, gravitate back toward the social gospel of the 1900s, that we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is proclamation of truth. And uh, sometimes I see churches uh, thinking that their primary task is social justice or um, just serving the community, but our primary task is still the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Bob, way back in early uh, 2000 or so, a little later than that, after I'd, I'd read, read the book, I went to Southeast for one of the conferences there and worshiped with that church and they ended up taking some others back Um because it raised my vision of what was possible in a restoration church. I think we have sometimes thought uh, that some of our distinctive beliefs about baptism and weekly communion were somehow uh, barriers in our religious world of that kind of growth. And, you know, that said to a lot of folks, boy, when you preach God's word as you see it, um, God will build his kingdom and build churches. I'm just out of interest and, and curiosity to how you'd answer this question. I'd be interested to hear why, why do you suspect that God chooses to bestow such growth in certain places and, and using certain people as he does? And, and then what would you say to folks in churches who get discouraged because they don't see such results? Yeah. Well, there's a lot in that question and uh, I don't know why uh, God gives some people with the opportunity that others don't have. I don't know why some seed falls on hard soil and some on fertile soil. And even there, 30, 60, 100 full, there's going to be a lot of variety. And I had the privilege uh, of sowing the seed in a very uh, uh, receptive area. And uh, it there's so many factors that come together to enable a church to grow. And once that momentum catches hold, it is an amazing thing because people begin to invite others. I don't think that the principles that we've held to as a brotherhood are a barrier to growth at all. I think the world and the church world in particular is hungry for the freedom that we enjoy of just going back to the Bible, trying to restore biblical principles. But I heard Bob Moorhead say years ago a a phrase that stuck with me. He says there has to be a delineation of the denominational distinctive. 
And by that, he pointed out that almost every denomination has a distinctive that we emphasize uh, to a greater degree than it's emphasized in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in in so many churches, we feel like we've got to win people to Jesus and our, our doctrinal distinctive. And so one of the things that I tried to do was to, to keep a balance about teaching uh, salvation through Jesus Christ's salvation through by grace through faith and not overemphasizing baptism or not overemphasizing uh, a restoration movement i would bring those things up on occasion and try to make them clear but i tried to keep it in balance with the rest of the scripture and i, I think one of the uh, ways that southeast helped some other churches was that uh, they saw that we, we, we can grow. We, we, can, we can still uh, be, be evangelistic and hold on to those principles, but not overemphasize it. To, to give you an example, in 1987, uh, our church got over 1,000 people, and I knew I was in way over my head. <laughs> I said, I, I'd like to talk to some other preachers who have a church this size to find out what they're doing. So I contacted every Christian church that I knew of that had around a thousand, and twelve or fourteen hundred was the most. And there were nine churches, and I invited all these guys to come to Louisville for three days. Let's just network together. Well, they all came, and we had such a great time together. It was so beneficial because we found out none of us knew what we were doing. <laughs> but it was, it was it was encouraging to be with each other. So we said, "Let's do this every year," and that started the mega church. Uh, ministers conference that was in 1987 nine churches now they continue that conference to this day and i think there are 170 churches wow. involved in that or eligible mm. for that and i think there are 12 or 14 that are now meeting that have over 5,000 in attendance and it's just great to see uh the growth in our movement now the bu- last half of that question is really an important one what do you say to preachers who don't experience that? Uh, and that's the majority of preachers. Uh, we, we, can, we can be discouraged by comparison. And I, one of the things I try to say is that God does not measure your effectiveness or your self-worth by numbers. Uh, he measures your self-worth, your, your, your value to the kingdom by faithfulness. Some seed's going to fall on hard soil, and maybe you're in a thorny area, you're a hard area. Your responsibility is to sow the seed, because the difference isn't in the sower, the difference is in the receptivity of the soil. Hmm. The Apostle Paul who preached at Thessalonica, same guy preached at Berea, but for some reason Bereans were more noble, and they received the word of God with much more grace. Same preacher. Or John the Baptist's numbers went down the second year. <laughs> Big time. And Jesus didn't say, well, John the Baptist is really blown and his tennis is off. No, he said, no greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. So I, I, I talk to preachers all the time who are in less than ideal circumstances. They don't have the kind of leadership that I had at Southeast. They don't have the kind of location. They don't, they don't have the kind of harmony in the church. And I say to them, you remember your calling. Don't be disobedient to that heavenly vision. And you remember that God's going to reward you according to faithfulness, not according to whether you preached in a large church or not. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, 
I'm going to switch gears just a little bit on you. Um, I know that Kevin is a huge fan of your books, um, especially uh, Together Again. Kevin, am I right? Amen. Great book. Loved it when it came out and loved the, the heart of it. Thank you. Um, in the introduction of the book, Together Again, there's a story about you playing golf with Rick, actually. And uh, it was just after the North American Christian Convention that led to Rick's preaching at Southeast and a conversation about our common history in the American Restoration Movement. What was your experience with and your perception of the um, Churches of Christ, or as some may know, the acapella churches? Well, that was kind of an evolution for me. Uh, I grew up in a pretty legalistic church, and we were very sectarian in our convictions. Uh, We knew that a slogan in the Restoration Movement was, we are not the only Christians, but Christians only. And uh, we were very conservative. And so we, I kind of believed and I kind of was taught as a young man that the other Christians were the people in the acapella Church of Christ. You know, when you're, when you're, when you're conservative, it's a lot easier to accept somebody a little more conservative than it is to accept somebody who's made a little more liberal. And so I remember as a boy, I was interested in baseball and there were two guys in the major leagues. They were, I think, brothers Vaughn and Lindy McDaniel. And they played for St. Louis. And I knew that they were Church of Christ guys. And boy, I rooted for them because I thought they're, they're saved. They're, they're one of us. <laughs> and then my parents helped to start a new church. We met in a house and we divided the dining room in the living room by a curtain and the adults met for Sunday school in the back and the kids met up in the front part where the piano and the platform were on the other side of the curtain. Well, we had some visitors from Texas one Sunday. They were coming through the area as tourists and they saw a sign on the building that said Conneautville Church of Christ. And in the North, the Church of Christ and Christian Church are, are used interchangeably. You can't tell whether it's an acapella church or an, an independent church used a piano. Mm-hmm. They came in the back and my dad was teaching Sunday school. And of course, only seven or eight people in the adult class. And they introduced themselves. They had great fellowship. And then we pulled back the curtain to start worship. And those people's jaw dropped. They saw that piano up front and they turned and they were going to leave. And my dad met them at the door, say, aren't you going to stay for worship? And they said, not if you're going to use that instrument of the devil up there. We're not staying. <laughs> So that my dad was so hurt over that. He just couldn't believe that somebody felt he wasn't saved, and uh, especially Church of Christ people. And then when I came to Louisville in 1966, now it's, it's hard to believe that there were this strong sectarian spirit that existed. It didn't exist all across the board, but it was there. And a local a cappella preacher had a radio program, and it was a call-in talk show. And one day he had, uh, his topic was why all Christian church ministers are going to hell. Mm. And so we invited him to come to our local preachers group and talk to us. And he did. And he told us we we're all going to hell because we knew better. We knew the instrument was wrong. We knew enough Bible to know it was wrong and God was going to judge us. So 
where as a young man, I thought Vaughn and Lindy McDaniel, man, they're there. And now I realize these people don't include me in their circle. So I'm going to exclude them. They're, they're too sectarian. So it took a while for me to overcome that. And I, I began to, to uh, associate with some guys in the Acapella Church of Christ. And I began to associate with some people who were Baptist and Nazarene. And wow, did the Lord break down the barriers in my life. And I came to really believe that slogan, we are not the only Christians, but Christians only. I'm still strongly a restoration movement guy. I think our plea is wonderful, but I'm not willing to say that everybody who doesn't believe our way is lost. And uh, in, in recent years, my association with Rick and other Christian uh, Church of Christ guys has uh, really been a rich fellowship for me. I look back, Megan, and I hear these guys talking about great, great Church of Christ preachers. And I never got to hear them. Hmm. And they're part of our family. And I, I think about all the rich experiences we could have had if we had just had fellowship together. All the great teachers and, and preachers we could have been exposed to if we just hadn't divided the way we did. It is a, a sad story. I, I feel so similarly that, that so many of, of these preachers and in independent Christian churches and churches of Christ uh, that I missed out on hearing, what a blessing it would have been, not only to me personally, but what, what a greater impact our churches could have had um, as a result. And as you point out, that, you know, that prayer of Jesus for unity isn't just for our movement, it's for believers, all who will believe in him and and we need to be thinking in terms more broadly of our movement. Um, but what a privilege to kind of get at least going down the road uh, with our movement where there's been disunity. And your book, uh, Together Again, Megan referenced it. Uh, you co-authored with Rick Atchley. It was published in 2006. I think it's published on Christian Standard. I just want to say to our listeners, uh, you would be blessed to get a copy of that book and read it. Um, in In my view, I think in our view, it's um, foundational for what we're doing here in 2021, uh, kind of sharing th this desire for more dialogue and conversation and unity. In that book, uh, Bob, you share about uh, Rick Atchley's message at the 2003 North American Christian Convention, where you'd invited him to speak. I think you were directing it that year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you you felt at that time. How'd you feel about our prospects then for unity and then now? And what challenges or potential threats should we be watching out for? It's amazing how, how God works. Uh, I was president of the North American Christian Convention. And at that time, every morning there would be a Bible study uh, or two that you could go to. And I had selected uh, Liz Higgs, Liz Curtis Higgs, teach a Bible mm -hmm. study. And then David Reagan, uh, teach a Bible study. And I got a few comments said, well, you got a woman and you got a guy who's a pre-millennialist and we, we, we want somebody who, uh, and we want another choice. And so I thought, well, it's not too late. But I, I had heard of Rick Ashley. I think I'd heard him preach one time. And so I called Rick and I said, would you be willing to come to the North American convention and teach a Bible study in the morning at eight o'clock? Well, he, he graciously accepted, and it was the most popular of the Bible studies. 
And I think we played golf together before the convention. And uh, Rick's a very good golfer and fun to be with. And we got to talking about the lack of fellowship. And I said, while you're at the convention, what if in the evening session you got up and you just made a, a statement of, uh, of uh, unity from on behalf of your brotherhood toward our convention? And he did, and his statement, which is written in the book, was outstanding. He didn't pretend to speak for everybody in the acapella side of the of the movement, but he said, I'm speaking for a lot of guys that I know, and, and we count you as our brother, and we apologize for the sectarian spirit that we've had. We believe that it's God's will for us to be one. That doesn't mean we have to eliminate our preferences. Some of us still prefer to sing without a piano but we count you as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're very hopeful that somehow we can cooperate more in the future. And it was an exciting moment. It was an electric moment uh, because it was an idea whose time had come. And there were a lot of people sitting out there who wanted to have that kind of overture and communication. And so we went on from there and, there have been some uh, cooperative efforts for planting churches and uh, a couple, two, three churches cooperated in ministering to people in Hurricane Katrina. And, and there have been some merger of churches and pulpit exchanges. I always want things to happen a lot faster than they do. But I, 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 I think we're making progress. My original observation that night was uh, not that night, but shortly after that night was about a third of the people in the acapella church were in total agreement with Rick. About a third were mm, just kind of sitting back and watching. And then there were probably a third that were strongly opposed because uh, they had just been drilled all their life that uh, to sing with the piano and uh, some of the differences in the movement was a matter of salvation. But I think gradually those uh, barriers are coming down. And one of the joys of my ministry, frankly, has been to see not just this barrier come down, but other denominational barriers come down. I mean, I have been asked, last week I spoke to two different Baptist groups of preachers. I've spoken to Nazarene and Church of God and people who hold to uh, the inspiration of Scripture and the Lordship of Christ and uh, salvation uh, through Jesus Christ and baptized by immersion. There's so much we have in common, and I'm thankful those barriers are coming down. You asked about what do we need to be alert to. I think we've got to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. It is so easy to say, okay, we're going to compromise on some of these methods. We're going to compromise on some of these uh, areas where the Bible is silent and begin to inch over into compromising biblical truth, which we cannot do. Yes. Hey, listen, Bob, this discussion has been so riveting. I don't know if I've ever used that word before in my life, but <laughs> I thought it was very You, you used it here. well. <laughs> Thank you. I was like, 
checking the thesaurus to make sure it was the right context. So, (laughs) (laughs) hey, um, I can't wait to continue this conversation in this next episode coming out next week. Guys, make sure you tune back in. Bob, is there anything you want to say before we uh, finish up this this episode? No, I just remember when I was in Bible college, I had a great professor named Dr. Lewis Foster. And I remember him saying he thought we were coming to a place in the future when churches wouldn't be divided by denomination, but we would be divided by those who held to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the integrity of the scripture and those who didn't. And I think that's where we are today. The the world is becoming so hostile and so hedonistic and anti-Christ that God's people who believe in the truth of the gospel need to, to band together, bond together. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll give an amen to that. Um, as you said, the times are so different than all those years back when you started ministry. And uh, we, we can't afford uh, as Christians in the United States and I think in the world to remain disunited. We need to pull together on the common faith that we have in Christ. Bob, what a, what a great blessing to be with you. And as Megan said, I was riveted as well. I know our listeners will be, and we will so look forward uh, to you being back with us next week. So those of you that are listening, please join us again. There will be another uh, installment of our podcast with Bob Russell next week. Look forward to being with you again. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast with Megan and Kevin. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles, join the Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.